0: Her request, He didn't want to be irritated by her or bothered by her persistence anymore, and so he just does what she asks. And Jesus uses this unrighteous judge not as a point of comparison for us, but a point of contrast. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. And Jesus' point was that if the widow can receive justice from an unrighteous judge, how much more... Can God's beloved children expect justice from an infinitely righteous and merciful God who cry to Him day and night? And so, in a sense, we as believers are to identify with this widow. But as we move on through Luke 18, we see this remarkable pattern start to emerge. Consider that this widow, in our previous parable, had no resources of her own. She has nothing by which to commend herself, and in fact, widows in the Old Testament were frequently spoken of alongside of that of orphans. They're dependent, they're needy. Uh, She has no advocate to come and fight on her behalf. She had no resources of her own. And as we're going to see in our text this morning, this tax collector in our parable has no righteousness by which he can commend himself to God. He's got no deeds upon which he can boast or laud to God. He's dependent on God for mercy. The children we're going to see in verses 15 and 17 of Luke 18, which the Greek word there means babies in arms. They come to him with nothing to give, nothing to offer, no resources of their own. And then later on in verses 35 through 43, we'll run into a blind beggar who's sitting alongside the road on the way to Jericho. He's weak. He's unable to feed himself or earn his own living. He's wholly dependent upon charity. And so every story in Luke chapter 18, bar one, we have in them someone who has nothing by which to commend themselves. They're helpless. They're needy. we got the widow, the tax collector, the children, the blind beggar, all portrayed in Luke 18 as helpless, dependent, without any resources. And so this helps us get a little understanding and connectedness between these parables and stories and gives us a context a bit before we get into the detail. But it seems to me clearly that this tax collector is the one upon whom Jesus is shining the light upon, and that He's the one that we need to draw our attention to. And so what our Lord is going to teach us through this tax collector this morning is that salvation... Comes to those who are wholly dependent on the righteousness of Christ, and they are graciously justified by Him. So I want us to read our text together from verses 9 through 14 of Luke chapter 18 so that we can have it before our hearts and our minds. If you're there with me in your Bibles, I want to invite you to stand if you're able to do so, beginning in verse 9 of Luke chapter 18. God's inspired and inerrant word says this. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes up to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you that this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Lord, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Just pray that it would nourish us, instruct us, comfort us, and correct us as necessary, God. Help us not to just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, and take this and apply it in our lives. God, by the power of your spirit, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated it's been said that there are only two basic religions in the world. There's the religion of divine accomplishment and the religion of human achievement. One depends upon what God has done and the other on what man can do. One is a gift, the other is earned. One is by divine grace and the other is by human effort. The religion of divine accomplishment is the gospel of Jesus Christ, who by God's mercy and grace purchased man's redemption by offering himself as a sacrifice on the cross. The religion of human achievement encompasses all other religions of the world, which seeks to please and appease God by various forms of achievement and human effort. Those who follow the way of divine accomplishment say that there is nothing that I can accomplish on my own power or anything within me that exudes goodness and righteousness and I have to throw myself upon the mercy of God and trust in the all-sufficient sacrifice of His Son on my behalf. And those who follow the way of human achievement, no matter what the name of it might be and how it's packaged, say, on my own merit. And in my own power and my own strength, I can make myself acceptable to God. And I can do enough good works that I will be worthy of a place in heaven. Now, Just to confirm this to you, I want you to consider all the major religions of the world. Mormonism teaches salvation by works. Judaism, salvation by works. Jehovah's Witness is salvation by works. Roman Catholicism, salvation by works, and as recently as the Catholic Catechism of 1994 said, God will declare a person just only when that person has achieved and inherit righteousness. Islam is salvation by works. The Mighty I Am movement teaches salvation by works, which is a group that supposedly received spiritual messages from Saint Germain and Jesus both, and so they do consider themselves Christian, although some movement, some of the groups in this movement believe that they have received messages from UFOs. The Urantia Foundation, which has a 2,100-page book, teaches salvation to the universal father, as they call it, and that is by works. The One World Family teaches that there is nobody that needs salvation because everybody's always perfect. They're a blend of Christianity and the hippie culture and communal living and, again, UFOs, in case that's your thing. Spiritualism is salvation by works. The Association for Research and Enlightenment. I love this one. Salvation by works. They teach dream interpretation, personal spirituality, and reincarnation. And, as a bonus, they have a school of massage, if you'd like to get into that. The Divine Light Mission is salvation by works. You say, what's that? That is Guru Maharaji. It's a little guy who sits on soft pillows with flowers. Ohapsi, which is a strange Eastern cultic religion, teaches salvation by works. Herbert W. Armstrong and the Radio Church of God, salvation by works. And I actually met a guy in Logan County a couple years ago who was a follower of his. The Great White Brotherhood is Salvation by Works. This is a New Age religion that you can become a member of and earn the title of Master of Ancient Wisdom, which would be great for your LinkedIn bio if you want to put that on there. The Unification Church of the Reverend Moon is Salvation by Works. If you join that church, you'll be called a Moony, and it's big in South Korea and Southeast Asia. Christian science is salvation by works, of which it says that Christian science, that there is nothing Christian and there's nothing scientific about it. In other words, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of different packages of religions which have all kinds of different shapes, sizes, claims, prizes that simply amount to some sort of form of human achievement and somehow make it so God will accept you. Though any number of certain means, through any number of certain means, rather, you can better yourself. You can become pleasing to God or to gods, depending on the religion. You can take yourself to a better world. You can gain salvation or enlightenment or nirvana or whatever you want to call it because you have within your own self the ability to do that. But over and over again, against all those religions of works righteousness upon which we could choose, stands the gospel of Jesus Christ that comes solely by the grace and the mercy of God. There are only two kinds of religions in the world, and in this parable that we have in our text, we have that laid out very clearly because we indeed do have two people, two prayers, and two prospects for eternity. Now, these two people couldn't be any more different and clearly differentiated and contrasted than what we have here. One has a self-focus, the other has a Godward focus. One is proud, the other is humble. One prays to himself and the other prays to God. One is trusting in his works of righteousness and the other is trusting in God's mercy. And in the end, one is condemned and the other is justified before God. So I want you to notice first of all in verse nine with me the setting. It says this, and he told also told this parable to some people who were trusting in themselves that they were righteous, and they viewed others with contempt. In other words, Jesus wasn't necessarily just targeting the Pharisees in this parable. There is more of a universal application in this parable in that he had his sight set on anyone who would be self righteous those who would have confidence in themselves, anyone who would trust in their own merit, anyone within earshot of his voice that thought they possessed righteousness. Now this word righteousness simply means to be brought into moral conformity, uprightness, that which is honorable and ethical before God. But righteousness is sort of like bringing a set of scales into balance. God has a a standard that you and I need to meet and that is His holy law. And you and I can't meet that standard unless we have Jesus Christ on our side to bring that scale up to balance, and that is His perfect righteousness. He was the only one who perfectly kept every aspect of the law that you and I break every day. And we can't lift ourselves up to God by our own self-righteousness, because we need what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is ex nos, and that's Latin meaning outside of ourselves. But the people that Jesus, Jesus was addressing thought they had it all together when it came to their relationship to God. They reasoned in their mind that they've done enough good to outweigh the bad. That was what I was taught growing up. As long as you do enough good... You're good to go. But James 2.10 tells us who whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. There's no grading on a curve when it comes to the law. There's no loopholes, no escape clauses. But not only did they think they were good enough, these people that he's talking to, it says they viewed others with contempt. They were condescending. They had a lofty thought of themselves, a superior attitude when it came to other people. In their mind, they were standing side by side with God in their righteousness, and therefore they were far above all the other people around them. Or say it another way, they were full of pride. So then in verse 10, we're introduced to our two characters of our parable. Notice that it says there, two men went up to the temple to pray." One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now you could not pick two people on the opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of religiosity and social status. The Pharisees, because if you actually lived in, uh, excuse me, if you lived in first century Israel and someone were to come to you and ask you, who is the most religious person in society, you would have answered it is the Pharisees. They taught in the synagogues. They led worship there. They were the guest of honor in any social gathering. But because of their exclusivity of their fellowship with you, if you had a Pharisee attend a meal or a gathering in your home, it was a mark that you had a high social status. The word Pharisee literally means separate ones. They were notorious students of the Bible text. They were committed to fending off idolatry from the nation of Israel. They were meticulous, In the following of the law in that they would carefully strain a drink to make sure that even a gnat wasn't in it because insects were ceremonially unclean. They painstakingly counted their seeds in order to make sure that their tithe was accurate in order to try to follow Leviticus 27.30, which says, Thus all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. You couldn't find anyone more godly in all of Israel. But despite all of their attention to the law's external details, they were oblivious to the law's central message. The law should have humbled them and showing them the magnitude of their guilt, but instead it became for them a point of extreme pride. Jesus said to them in Matthew twenty three twenty four, You blind guides... You strain out a gnat and yet you swallow a camel. And then he followed up in Matthew 23:27 by saying to them, "For you are like a whitewashed tomb, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even though they went through great efforts to try to be obedient to the law, within their hearts, they were as guilty as the sinners around them, just as depraved as the outcasts of society that they treated with contempt. From a human viewpoint, they had it all together, but it did not fool God. From his all-seeing eye, he knew that they were just as guilty as the rest. Conversely, and likewise, if you lived in the first century of Israel and you were asked to name the least religious person in society, you'd have probably answered a tax collector. The tax collectors were considered the scum of Jewish society. They were below whale barf. They were in the employment of the occupying Roman government, and they were considered traitors to Israel. They would purchase a franchise and and give the Romans a certain cut of the tax monies they collected each year, and anything above and beyond that, they got to keep for themselves. They were greedy, they were dishonest, they usually depended upon extortion and thuggery to get the money that they collected. R. Kent Hughes said that in today's culture, the closest social equivalent would be the drug pushers and the pimps who prey on society and make money off others' bodies and make a living from stealing from others. In other words, this tax collector was a crook. He's a thief. And for him to even be at the temple, let alone going up to pray in the temple in Jerusalem, would have been a stretch. A praying tax collector was an oxymoron. But here's where the friction in this parable starts to build. It says in verse 11, The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I pay tithes of all I get. Now, we might read that and think, well, he's, he's actually praying to himself and not to God, but in first century Israel, prayer was often either silent or, or spoken in a low, soft voice. Praying loudly was considered rude, but there is one thing for sure. His prayer was more full of self-congratulatory dissertation than it was a prayer of genuine thanksgiving to God we can see that by the use of that pronoun there i use five times that himself is the one he actually worships and not god but his first four words start off they start off pretty good god i thank you right but then that's about where it ends if he would have stopped right there it would have been better had he not continued on but he does continue on he says i thank you that i'm not like other people swindlers unjust adulterers or even like this tax collector. And so what we see here in this guy's prayer is that he majors on three elements of obedience. Three elements of of obedience. His negative obedience, his legalistic obedience, and his comparative obedience. This is how he measures himself before God. So first of all, we see he measures himself on negative obedience. In other words, he's comforting himself by reminding himself of the sins he has not committed. I haven't done this. I haven't done that. I haven't swindled and I'm not greedy. I'm not unjust and I haven't dealt fraudulently with anyone in my business. And I'm not an adulterer and I haven't cheated on my wife. Now, there are probably many of us who are like this in the room who might say to ourselves something along the same lines. Well, at least I haven't done that. I'm a pretty decent person. At least I've never drank whiskey, or smoked illegal drugs, or been to a bar, or gambled, or whatever it is, you name it. But what this does for the Pharisee and for us is that it actually provides a smokescreen for the sins we have actually committed. And it breeds pride. Maybe... You haven't been to a bar, but you've gossiped. Maybe you haven't done illegal drugs, but you've coveted. Maybe you haven't gambled your money away, but you've gotten so angry with someone that you just let words fly out of your mouth that shouldn't have come out. So he measures himself on a negative obedience. And the second thing he does is that he measures himself On a legalistic obedience. We see that in verse 12. He says, I fast twice a week. Now, the law required that he only fast one time a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement, according to Leviticus chapter 16. And a fast, by very simple definition, is to go without food for a time for spiritual purposes. Very simple. And so this guy is fasting 100 times more than the law actually required. He was going above and beyond. He goes on, he says, I pay tithes of all that I get. Again, this too was far above and beyond because the law only required that there would be a tithe of certain produce. And not every single thing under the sun. So this guy is going way out of his way in his religious duties. Again, this can be another smokescreen in covering sin that we can imbibe in as well. We can say to ourselves, I've gone to church this week. I'm good to go. I read my Bible every single day this week and twice on Saturday, and so God must be pleased with me. I took my family to a Bible conference, so that should do the trick. I gave some money away to someone in need, so Uh, That should buy me some time with God so that He won't trouble my conscience for a few days. We indulge in the same types of things within our minds. So a negative obedience, a legalistic obedience, and then thirdly, a comparative obedience. He says, I thank you that I'm not like other men, especially that tax collector. Everyone knows that he's a crook, and I sure am glad I am not like him. Beloved, this is one of the most dangerous and common things that we do in our lives. is we compare ourselves by ourselves, we reason in our minds, well, at least I'm better than most. At least I'm not like so-and-so. At least I don't do that. We look at another family and think, you know what, I wouldn't get involved in sports as much as they do. That's an idol in their life. I wouldn't let a kid, my kids watch that movie. That's sinful. And the classic and usually humbling thought is, I can't believe so-and-so's kids did that because my kids would never do that. I say, wait. <laughs> because the issue isn't whether or not you are better than the next person beside you. Or you're better or doing better than the next person on the other side of the room. But what are you before the all-seeing eye of God? What secret grumblings of your heart have been raging all week long? What murmurings of God's goodness and providence have been resonating in the chambers of your heart? What expression of gratitude and praise have you withheld from God who has given you nothing but mercy all week long. If one of the most frequently given commands in all of Scripture is to sing, when did your heart become so full of God that as you were driving down the highway, that people are looking at you funny because you just started to sing to the Lord in praise? I will sing of my Redeemer, whose precious blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that ransom tree. Listen, your neighbor is not your measuring rod of how well you are doing spiritually. Your only measuring rod is the infinitely perfect Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Your husband or your wife is not your measuring rod of how rightly you are walking with God. It's only Jesus Christ. Your neighbor's kids aren't your kids' measuring rod. It's only Jesus Christ. It's no wonder Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7, Do not judge so that you will not be judged, for in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at your neighbor or the speck in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own? Oh, how we love to compare ourselves by ourselves to make ourselves feel better. And that's what this Pharisee is doing here. His prayer is full of pride, self-exaltation, self-congratulation, devoid of any true praise to God, no request made to God, no plea for help, no forgiveness, no grace called for, no mercy Because in his mind, he has all the merit, all the righteousness he needs. As one commentator put it, he said, He glances at heaven, but he contemplates himself. There is an entirely different way to pray. And it is the only way that will save our souls. And We see that in verse 13. It says there this, But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. So we notice something different about this tax collector right away. First of all, it says that he stood some distance away as compared to the Pharisee who would have just strolled right up front to the temple's inner courts to get as close as he could get and really be on display for everyone to see him go up in prayer. This tax collector would have stayed in the outer courts, not even daring to get to the closer, any closer, to the most holy place, the place where God's presence would appear. But why did he do that? Because he knows he doesn't deserve to be in the presence of God or even in the presence of those who are righteous. He's rejected, he's a traitor. But more than that, he knows he's a sinner. Secondly, it says that he dared not even to lift his eyes up to heaven. Contrary to the Pharisee, who was happy to stand with arms raised up, open face looking up to God, assuming and displaying that everyone there would be, uh, sh- be on display and show for everyone, and to show them he is acceptable to God, and that he could look eyeball to eyeball with God. This tax collector wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven, meaning towards God. He's overwhelmed with guilt. He's overwhelmed with shame and it shows up in his posture and he knows he's unworthy. He could reason within himself and say, Well, you know what, as far as other tax collectors, yeah, I'm, at least I'm here in the temple, at least I'm praying. I don't see anyone else doing that. But we don't see that in the text. Then, thirdly, it says that he's beating on his breast, he's pounding on his chest with his fists. And so this was actually a rarity if a man would do this. Most typically, a woman would do this as an expression of extreme grief and despair. But he's in anguish over his sin. He's a broken man. And so why does he pound on his chest and not on his head or on his knees or somewhere else on his body? An old Jewish commentary said this, why do the righteous beat on their heart as though to say all is there? The righteous beat on their heart because the heart is the source of evil longing. Jesus taught this same principle to us in Mark seven twenty one. He said, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts and fornications, thefts, murders, and adulteries. This is a man who understands his own sinfulness. He knows what's in his heart. And the only thing that he can ask of God is mercy, because mercy is the only thing that he dared ask for. And the language here is pretty important. He's not asking for leniency. He's asking for atonement. The language really translates to this, be propitious to me. In other words, he's asking God to go from being at enmity with him because of his sin to being restored in fellowship and favor. He's not asking God to turn a blind eye to his sin. He's not asking God for a mulligan or a free pass or just to be patient with me one more time, Lord. He's pleading on God to make whatever satisfaction is necessary to deliver him from his sin's condemnation and turn away God's righteousness wrath. He knew that the wages of sin was death, and that the soul who sins shall die, as in Ezekiel eighteen twenty. And so he's confessing that he is a hopeless sinner, unworthy even to stand near the holy place, unworthy to even lift his eyes up to heaven, and all he could do was plead to God to make atonement for sins on his behalf. Have you ever asked God to pardon your life like this tax collector did. Have you ever pleaded with God to take away your sins, turn your wrath away from me? God still answers that same prayer today. And He does so through faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Where if you confess your sinfulness, you cast yourself onto Jesus Christ, you place all of your faith and trust in Him to save you and propitiate you, God will take all of his wrath and place it onto the broad shoulders of Jesus Christ, and you in turn get the righteousness, all of the righteousness you will ever need, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so, if you were to die right now, God wouldn't see a filthy, self righteous sinner, but one that has been washed clean, brought back into relationship with him. Have you done that today? Have you asked, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? Because look at the crescendo of our verses in verse 14. Jesus says this, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. I want to make sure you don't miss the terrifying four Words in the middle of verse 14 for that Pharisee. He says, I tell you, this man, that is the tax collector, went down to his house justified, right there, rather than the other. The Pharisee, the righteous one, the one that looked good on the outside before everyone else, the one thanking God for his righteousness, was not justified. He was condemned. But notice that the tax collector didn't do any works of penance. He didn't do any sacramental or ritual things. He, there was no time lapse, no purgatory to go through. He did no meritorious work whatsoever to be able to be justified before God, but it was done by God on his behalf. It's been said that the only thing, only thing that you bring to the table in terms of your salvation is the sin that made it necessary in the first place but it says he's justified on the spot. That prayer was immediately answered. He's acquitted of all the charges against him because of his sin. He has vindicated before the bar of justice. And this word justified means not only has his sin no longer held against him, not only did God propitiate or turn his wrath away from him, but he is also counted as righteous. And so it says having your sin uh, removed was not freeing enough. If that was not good news enough in and of itself that you no longer have your sins counted against you, you also get the righteousness of Christ. If God would only act in such a way to remove your sin, you'd be morally neutral. And you still could not ascend into the presence of God. You need righteousness. Where does that righteousness come from? It comes from Jesus Christ. Isaiah 61.10 says that I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for He, that is God, has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that He made Him who knew no sin, that's Jesus Christ, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You not only get forgiveness of sins, which is a tremendous blessing in and of itself, but you get the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that the life that He lived is accounted to you. It's reckoned to you. You see, you're not only saved by the death of Jesus Christ, you're saved by the life of Jesus Christ. Every aspect of the law was perfectly kept by Him. The law that you and I can't fulfill, the law you and I can't believe, He did. And you get that righteousness. You get to stand before God when He looks down at you. He says, You are like my son. You are like my daughter. That's good news. That's the gospel. And notice this paradoxical statement at the end of verse 14. He says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that in order to go up to glory, we must first go down in humility. We must decrease so that he might increase. In a word, we must put ourselves on the opposite of pride, and that is to put on a cloak of humility. 1 Peter 5, 5-6 five says, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. So here we see this humility that we should have before our fellow man. But then he goes on, the humility that we should have before God. In verse 6, he says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. J.C. Ryle calls humility the queen of all graces. And Spurgeon has said that humility still remains among the rarest of jewels. And so what Jesus is teaching us here is that the pathway to exaltation is through humility. The road to heaven is paved with stones of humility. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards said on humility. He said, A truly humble man is sensible of the small extent of his own knowledge and the great extent of his ignorance, and of the small extent of his understanding as compared with the understanding of God. He's sensible of his weakness, how little strength is his and how little he is able to do. He is sensible of his natural distance from God, of his dependence on him and of the insufficiency of his own power and wisdom and that it is by God's power that he is upheld, that he is provided for and that he needs God's wisdom to lead and to guide him and his might to be able to Him in him to do what he ought to do for him. Listen, there are only two religions in the world. Are you dependent upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Or are you looking at your own works as the basis as why God should accept you? Jesus teaches us very clearly, very plainly, that there is only one way into the entrance of the kingdom of God, and that there is no other way of salvation except through Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths and pray that uh, they would leave an indelible mark on our heart. That those who know the gospel would not let it come to us in a cold-like manner, but it would come with a fervor, a rekindling. And Father, we just uh, pray for those who do not know you today. They would put their trust. Holy in the work that Jesus Christ has accomplished, that they would cast themselves upon you. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.